Welcome to the 14th episode of Antibodies. Joining me today is Natalie and Ooh. Eugenio. Hello. Hello, guys. We're back after about, it's been three or four weeks now, and I can't wait to discuss an article. We have discussed so much about T-cells that finally I'm glad we picked up a, a paper on B-cells. Yeah, I mean, I'm a B-cell person and I'm over the moon. This is excellent. I honestly did not know you were a B-cell person. I just thought you were a T-Rex person like everybody else who's a part of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I'm a microRNA okay, okay. person. <laughs> before, we, before we start about B-cells, do you guys want to say anything? Uh, well, well, I did want to ask you guys one thing. Okay. Uh, what's the difference between antibodies and antibodies? You know, like the podcast. Uh, what? Well, antibodies don't make crappy jokes. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> Was this shorts fired right on us? It's a, it's a, it's a, one of those rare self burns. So that's why I never uh, read the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's our jokes, right? <laughs> we got we got a very interesting paper with us today. And but before we even talk about B cells or specifics about this paper, let's learn some terminology and some basics, basic information about what B cells do. Natalie, do you want to take this one? Yeah, of course. So uh, B cells are like the axis of humoral immunity. They are the antibody secreting factory that will make those specific little, uh, you know, like a lock key sort of thing to identify possibly any antigen you could ever encounter in your entire life. Uh, they are born in the bone marrow and, you know, they arise through many, many different uh, progenitors and whatnot. And uh, basically what happens is while they're in the bone marrow, they undergo a series of uh, gene rearrangements in what's called their BCR, which is their B cell receptor, which will actually later become the antibody that allows that antibody to bind with just almost anything at all because it's totally random the sort of rearrangements that may happen um so what's yeah. there yeah there's about what billions or trillions of possible combinations yeah that b cell receptors can take <laughs> it's insane if you look at like the actual number that they could create so um then after that they're going to exit into the periphery and they'll try to encounter antigen and then we can talk more about what happens there. But uh, one thing that's kind of interesting about B cells in comparison to T cells is that uh, the central tolerance mechanism is not quite as strong for B cells. So uh, in the thymus, you know, you have basically uh, peptides from all sorts of tissues, self tissues being expressed in there that T cells will be trained that they shouldn't be identifying. And in contrast, the B cells, they're just being trained on whatever they might encounter in the bone marrow niche. So, um, yeah, know, it's, a, it's a it's like a passive way of getting trained yeah. instead of actively getting everything possible in their tissue. So T cells get a much stricter doll uh, like they get they go through a much strict regimen regimen compared to what B cells go through. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this leads us to activation. So the B cell has, you know, gone under, uh, has undergone a successful rearrangement within the bone marrow, and it doesn't appear to bind to self, you know, the self that it encounters in the bone marrow. So it leaves to go find its cognate antigen, hopefully. So mm -hmm. um, when this happens, it's going to get two signals that will allow the B cell to activate and then undergo the rest of the uh, steps after this. So. Uh, first, what happens is the, the BCR is actually stimulated by, you know, the antigen or whatever. So um, something will bind to, uh, we call it the immunoglobulin, the membrane Ig. And now this thing, it doesn't have a long, uh, what, what would you call that? 
intracellular domain. Yeah, it doesn't have a, a nice long tail for signaling. So it actually has these accessory molecules uh, called Ig-alpha and Ig-beta that have um, ITAMs, which are immune receptor tyrosine kinase-based activation motifs that allow for downstream signaling off of those. So, yeah, uh, we, we should actually do some episode on items and also the uh, gene rearrangement in future because that's that was one of the toughest part of immunology when I was learning. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> VDJ, it's all it's all too much. Yeah, we'll definitely do a one-on-one episode on that. I also want to point out here that B cells need these two signals. This is so similar to what T cells need, and. It just highlights the overall concept that our immune system does not want to be activated very easily. Yeah, it yeah. needs these number of signals before it can go on a rampage and destroy everything. <laughs> Which is great because inflammation is very destructive. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the second signal it's going to receive, you know, it can signal down through the BCRs, and if, if they, they are cross-linked, you'll get, like, more signaling, which makes sense um, if you have a lot of signaling close to together. Uh, the second signal can be through T-cell-mediated co-stimulation or uh, T-cell-independent responses. So, uh, basically, what happens is that uh, in a T-cell-independent response, you're depending on, uh, like, PAMPs, uh, things that might go through the TLRs and stimulate those things to tell you that this is in something that is evolutionarily considered to be bad for the immune system. So yes, you can go ahead and, and be activated. Um, and that will also involve extensive cross-linking of, of several BCRs signaling down through each other to, in order to get the strength to signal uh, and be activated. Uh, this paper focuses more on T-cell mediated co-stimulation so basically, you know, helper T cells, CD4 T cells, uh, they form this synapse that has many connections between uh, the B cell and itself, um, including, you know, CD40 on the B cell and CD40 ligand. The MHC2 is a peptide that the B cell is presenting, it's the APC. And, um, you know, the TCR, and then you have CD4 checking that this is all working out. And so once that synapse is, is successfully made, the T cell is going to be signaling to the B cell. It's like, okay, now you can go go do your B cell job. So I guess yeah. these two signals are what we're going to be talking about in this paper today. And one cool thing about this is first, this was so also going back to one of the papers we discussed back previously in the podcast. I discussed this one with Ned, uh, with uh, Anthea, thanks to Eugenio who sent who sent us this paper that only T cells that receive the highest stimulation, highest affinity stimulation, become follicular T cells, which are the specific subtype of T cells that activate B cells. I also want to point out something. Have you guys read any old QB books? you would notice that when whenever you come to this topic about T helper one cells, T helper two cells, you would see that T helper two cells are assigned this role of helping in antibody mm-hmm. production. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's actually a, a misinformation. The thing is <laughs> that T follicular helper cells make IL-4 and T helper two cells also make IL-4. So before T follicular helper cells were discovered, we just assume that it must be T helper two cells that are activating B cells since they are the only known T cells that make IL-4. But then later we found out there is a very specialized polarized T cell type called follicular helper that help B cells. So if you have been writing in your exams that it's T helper two, you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, also also something I want to point out here is that having a requirement of T cells uh, helping you in stimulation or, or not having the T cell requirement. This is sometimes very important in context of autoimmunity because as we just learned, B cells don't get that kind of strict tolerance regulation in the bone marrow. So they, while T cells do. So having a requirement for T cells to activate them, it's like another checkpoint to make sure no autoreactive B cells will be activated since no autoreactive T cells should ideally be activated too. But without having a requirement for T cells with this 
TLRs or PRR signaling, you would find a lot of these uh, autoimmune diseases have B cell activation that is not regulated by T cell. And it makes sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just like wanted to mention about this uh, T independent response that as Jatin says uh, in autoimmunity, and I I'm, uh, remember that in lupus, we have that uh, these B cells can be activated by uh, DNA that could be released by nets in neutrophils. As neutrophils are uh, a net, but particularly are one of the uh, right. drivers of, of lupus. So yes, this could be a really nice example of how a T-independent response could lead to an activation on B cell and autoimmunity. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, cool. I guess that's all the terminology we have. Uh, now we can get into the meat of the paper. So this paper is called NR4A, Nuclear Receptors Restrain B-Cell Responses to Antigen When Second Signals Are Absent or Limiting. Uh, this is first author Corey Tan out of uh, Julie Zickerman's lab. And um, yeah, so as we were saying, there are these two different signals, and this is a T-cell dependent model that they're using. And this is very important to enforce self-tolerance. So once you enter the activation of B-cells, all these crazy genetic changes are going to be changing. Like, um, I mean, the B-cell literally changes morphology entirely and then just becomes its antibody secreting factory. So it has to be very uh, tightly regulated. And uh, some of the genes that are upregulated include like ICAM and CD86. Um, and this is for, uh, you know, responding that that whole synapse, um, CD40, CD40 ligand. Um, oh, that's all within the synapse there. And one of the genes that's upregulated that they'll talk about later is, is called MYC. And this uh, is a transcription factor that upregulates lots of proliferation genes and helps that B cell to you know, undergo this massive clonal expansion that it's going to be undergoing in the germinal center reaction. But it's also a proto-oncogene. So if it's not controlled, then uh, you can end up with like lymphoma. Uh, that's actually it a It does make sense, right? That it's, <laughs> it's, its job is to elevate proliferation and it being a proto-oncogene? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, we actually use a mouse model in our lab where we just put uh, MYC behind the immunoglobulin locus and these mice oh. will irreversibly and like, that's seriously like four months of age develop a horrible, horrible lymphoma or leukemia. It's, you uh, better have a very good reason for doing that. Oh, yeah, we do. We do. It's, yeah. it's, I, I thought it's just out of spite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so to prevent, you know, Mick from ruining everyone's life, uh, basically, if the B cell does not receive the second signal within a certain time frame after the first signal, it's going to undergo ap apoptosis or it'll become anergic or it'll become naive again. So uh, it can't do all this, but basically how what that time frame is, how it's regulated, that's kind of a mystery. And it's, it's clearly important because this is a mechanism of tolerance. So mm -hmm. the question that they are asking is, there must be a regulatory mechanism that mandates the B cells to look for signal two immediately after receiving signal one. So what is the mechanism? So uh, this lab zoomed in on a, a couple of genes, NR4A1 through three, uh, that's a family of orphan nuclear receptors, and these guys are strongly upregulated uh, upon antigen stimulation. So uh, just orphan receptor means that we don't know who binds it, but what we do know about it is that those guys are upregulated when you stimulate the BCR, and they're upregulated, um, like what you say, like stoichiometrically, like the more mm -hmm. uh, enrichment, uh, more stimulation you have, the more of the gene you have especially right. in like a chronic state. Um, it seems that, I mean, in other papers, they've been shown to have redundant function. So uh, in Tregs, if you delete both one and four, you'll get a myeloproliferative order, uh, disorder. Um, and this is because the Tregs basically go away, but uh, it doesn't happen if you just delete one. And then another mm -hmm. thing that they know is that uh, these genes are capable of regulating apoptosis in B cells, uh, basically through BCL2. So there's a strong rationale that there's a link between these genes and what happens when the B cell gets stimulated. 
So the rest of the paper that we're going to tell you about is what they found and uh, how this plays into the two stimulation, uh, the two uh, signal stimulation of B cells. Hmm. I, I think that's a very good introduction. Do you guys want to start m- talking about the results? Sure. So the first one, the authors are just asking this question, how is NR4A, this is the gene name and the protein name is NUR77 or NUR77. Let's call it NUR. Everybody okay with that? NUR, yeah. This NUR. Is, <laughs> it's not confusing at all that they have two okay, names. Not a, yeah, NR4A, because NR4A is act, actually have to spell out each letter to say that. There isn't, I can't just say that off the, like, on a roll yeah. of tongue. It's more uh, easy. Anyway, NR4A family members, one to three, how is their expression regulated in B cells? That's the first question. The authors stimulated B cells with anti-IgM only. So anti-IgM would mimic a ligand against the BCR, assuming the BCR is IgM. So that's just signal one. And they're not providing signal two. They found that all these NR4A members were upregulated at two hours post-stimulation. So they find that it's mostly NR4A1 that's most abundant out of the three family members. So just to simplify their study, they're going to focus on NR4A1, which is called NUR77. So Mm -hmm. then the authors use a hen egg lysozyme model where B cells specific to hen egg lysozyme, also called HEL, (laughs) H-E-L, were incubated with different peptides of HEL with varying affinities. And NUR77 expression was both dependent on the concentration of the antigen and the affinity of the antigen. And right now they're just making these different like snippets of the same protein. And some of these snippets will have a higher affinity towards these B cells, these specific B cells that they're using, transgenic B cells that have an affinity towards uh, HEL. Hell's so B cells. They, Hell's B cells. <laughs> somebody should open a diner with that name. <laughs> anyway, so these Hell specific B cells, they were they upregulated NUR77 much more when the affinity of the Hell peptides were higher, and also when there was higher antigen present. And it makes sense, right? If you have more antigen, you're going to be cross-linking more BCR. At the same time, if you have a higher affinity antigen, you need less of the antigen to to get the same kind of BCR stimulation. So eventually, they confirm that some of the they confirm some of the findings from previously published work here. Who? Yeah, that's uh, that's about it. So they're just confirming here that yes, after signal one, these genes are upregulated, especially NR4A1, also called NUR77. So in summary, B cells upregulate NR4A1 after antigen simulation, which is signal one, and the magnitude of upregulation is dependent on both concentration and the affinity of the an- towards the antigen. So uh, I guess the next question to solve was, what does the expression of NUR77 is actually doing in B cells? And just before I um, uh, start uh, with this figure, I just like want to say that this is the first time I, that I read something about NUR77 because me as a T-cell boy, I'm always like reading about <laughs> function of NUR77 in T-cells, but particularly I was really surprised and thank you uh, Jatin for choosing this paper, which I think is fascinating. So going through the figure, uh, what is the role of NUR77 doing in B-cells? So to answer this, the authors use uh, NUR77 not called mice for uh, NR- NUR77. They stimulated uh, knockout and wild type uh, B cells with signal one, just like BCR stimulation, I, uh, I guess with IgM as previously done. And they found out that knockout B cells had an advantage as they were out proliferating with wild type B cells. So basically not having NUR77 make the B cells to somehow proliferate more. So then mm-hmm. uh, they also look at uh, you know, apoptosis, and they and they found out that a uh, knockout of, of NUR77 had a lower caspase 3 activation, which, is, as we all know, is a it's a protein that is 
uh, required for the activation of apoptosis. So not, not only the, t the B cells that don't lack, that lack, sorry, in NUR77 are proliferating more, but they also are actually are more resistant to apoptosis. So, yeah. Yep. So next, uh, the authors, uh, they ask if they add a survival factor just uh, as BAF, which is, stands for B-cell activating factor. What happened with these cells that lack NUR77? So they found out that the addition of BAF nullified the competitive edge that the knockout B-cells were getting. So it, far, it means that NUR77 is probably inciting apoptotic signals in BCR stimulated and preventing B cell proliferation. So it seems that not having you, you know this second signal, or at least just by giving the, the B cells uh, strong stimulation, uh, NUR, NUR will NUR77 will somehow restrict their proliferation and uh, lead to somehow apoptosis. So uh, just like to confirm mm. that, and we we all scientists we all we are always reading this type this type of of, of uh, study. So they were using here a, a total knockout mice, but now they are using a B cell specific knockout mice to just to confirm that not having NUR77 only in B cells, they will recapitulate uh, their phenotype. So not having this protein will uh, have, uh, induce you more proliferation and more resistant to apoptosis. So, yes. Uh, yeah, that's the. That they so they they confirm that this thing is just not because not all cells have nerve seventy seven, but it's a B cell intrinsic role yeah. that not B cells not having it also affects the, in, it in exactly, the same way. Yes. We all know like the importance of this gene in T cells, so they want to rule out that uh, in their phenotype. So in summary, uh, we can conclude that nerve seventy seven has a role in restraining B cell survival and proliferation after BCR stimulation. That makes complete yeah. sense, right? Yeah. I think uh, what's really cool about this finding is if you think about uh, within the germinal center reaction, uh, basically like Darwinian biology applies to uh, the B cells because it's a heterogeneous population, you know, because of uh, somatic hypermutation. Uh, there's all this proliferation, but there's limited T cell help that they can receive. So anything that would give a B cell a survival advantage over another one, you know, you, it's literally ecology. You can apply those same principles there. So one of the questions is like, how would a, a self-reactive B cell even make it through all this? And it's like, well, maybe it had some problem when they're 77 and, uh, you know, it was just yeah. it had a severe proliferative advantage over its friends. So. Cool. So, so now we're, we're digging into figure three. The next question is, well, how do you, how, how does signal two, all those co-stimulatory signals, um, affect NER77 and the, the B cell? So basically what they're doing in, in this experiment is measuring proliferation of B cells in response to multiple uh, stimulants. I don't know what you would call them. <laughs> <laughs> or the signaling uh, molecules. The second signals? Yeah, second signals. So um, basically they'll have the first signal, anti-IgM, and then they measure proliferation. And we already know that if you're missing the NER77, you're going to have more proliferation. But if you add a little bit of LPS or CPG, or uh, they used anti-CD40 um, within two hours or within four hours, then the proliferative advantage of these knockout B cells is totally diminished. They act just like normal B cells. So this shows that uh, the NER77 protein uh, only restrains the survival and proliferation of B cells after you receive signal one. And once you receive signal two, it doesn't do that anymore. So uh, it's a very, very selective protein acting only in response to the first signal. It's pretty cool. It's like not pretty having signal, yeah. And also, they mentioned this time frame that only if the signal two was delivered within four hours, then the selective advantage was nullified. Yeah. But so, so this is this might be the time frame when uh, NUR77 is working, right, to inhibit. Because if the second signal was given after four hours, then these knockout B cells were still 
um, proli- have they were proliferating more than wild type B cells. My question for future experiments is how is Nurse 77 just sticking around for four hours? Do the transcripts yeah. just decay or like does the protein just go away? Just like what happens? Oh yeah, maybe the sec- second signal is uh, like inducing some inhibitor of Nurse 77, yeah. right? Yeah, so it's possible. yeah. Yeah, because I'm I'm really curious about these four hours because why in these four hours the 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 nur, like the, the signaling with with nur does not kill the B cell. So it seems like it, at this point that you have like I don't know if if my statement is correct, but I don't know if you only have four hours to the B cell to encounter a, a, a second signal in order to not uh, you know die or uh, or yeah or restrain their proliferative capacity. Hmm. Yeah. Unknown. So, how how can we summarize this this result? Oh, uh, that NER seventy seven selectively restrains uh, the proliferation of B cell only in response to signal one, and then it does it until signal two is received, but only within four hours. So this is a very limited time frame. So next next question is: What is the significance of this restriction mechanism in vivo? The authors used a hapten called NP, NP is for hydroxy 3 nitrophenyl acetate. NP is too small to be detected by the immune system. So it needs to be conjugated to a big molecule to obtain an immune response against it. So NP itself will not be eliciting any immune response, but if you conjugate it to a polysaccharide, let's say like Phycol, you can study B cell responses that are T independent because polysaccharides cannot be presented on T cells directly. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, NP can also be conjugated to KLH, which is keyhole limpet hemocyanin, which will this is a protein. So if NP is conjugated with KLH, that that will elicit a B cell response with T cell help. Yeah, Natalie, we're gonna say something. Uh yeah, so well, one. Has anybody ever seen a keyhole limpet? They're very much not like a mouse. It's like a, a just, sea critter. I, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just, like, I was curious about this name. What kind of name is keyhole limpet? And I searched it on Google, and it, I, I did not know this is an organism. It's like an, a, a coastal animal. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's like a little weird. I don't know how to how to describe it at all without just making weird ocean <laughs> sounds, but. <laughs> Um, it's very, this is a really cool system because it allows you to search specifically for antigen specific B cells to NP. Um, mm-hmm. and we actually use this in our own lab. Um, of course the B cell, uh, the B cells can make antibodies to the FICL or the KLH or anything that's in this molecule, but you can, there are like special ways to measure specifically what is made against NP. And, um... What's also really interesting is that we know the exact peptide, I, uh, the amino acid that has to be changed within the BCR to make the antibody most specific to NP. So you can mm-hmm. just like sequence that part of the BCR and you're like, oh, this this you know B cell did a good job or it never was able to uh, make a high affinity binding antibody to this antigen. So it's like yeah. one of the coolest systems, I think, for studying uh, B cell biology. I'm more curious about who came up with this idea that I'm going to pick up a keyhole limpet and extract its hemocyanin so that I could use this as a model protein for I think, generating B cell responses. I think the purpose is that you just want something that is super, super foreign to the immune mm-hmm. system. So I don't know if they just like had keyhole limpets lying around or whatever, but yeah. <laughs> you don't want or anything the, uh, that's that's like some any, scientist yeah. was on the beach and he's like, hey, look at this. I can't I, I can eat it or I can <laughs> yeah. make a protein bank out of it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so this is the model their authors are using. NP conjugated to either KLH or polysaccharide FICOL. First, the authors used the NP FICOL immunization to study T-independent B-cell responses. In this case, they only provided the first signal because FICOL is just the, the, a repetitive polysaccharide and there is no second signal. So they found increased IgG3 responses. Compared this to wild-type mouse, there were 
where there were low antibody response to NP phycol. So normally, NP phycol would not make by itself would not give a very good response because it's only signal one. But in uh, but in NR4A knockout mice, there were uh, higher higher antibody responses. And just to point out, IgG3, this specific IgG is I, I, it does not require T cell help to be made. I don't I don't know what's the science behind it, but it can be made without T cell help. Normally, T cell help is it favors isotype switching. Anyway. So when they repeated this experiment with NPKLH, they also used NPLPS, which is just nitrophenol attached to LPS as the second, it could be a second signal too, to see if the same increase is seen with the dependent antigens when there is a second signal provided either by T cells or by LPS, they could not see the same results. So while FICOL specific B cells were proliferating more than wild type uh, in case when NR4A was absent. When the authors provided LPS or a protein that could help in T cell T cell help, there was no more competitive edge for the NR4A knockout B cells. They repeated these set of experiments with a B cell specific NR4A knockout again and found that found the same thing. And which means that NR4A1 is B cell intrinsic and it does have a role in vivo. So just to summarize, NUR77 or NR4A selectively restrains B cell responses to antigens in the absence of signal 2 and does so in a B cell intrinsic manner. In vivo, so I'm gonna, this is the same Conclusion as what Natalie just said, but we just showed that in in vivo. I mean, when I say we as an author, not we, I'm not taking credit here. <laughs> That's me. Every time I present in journal club, I always say like I do the experiments, but everyone's like, no, you, just, you didn't do that. <laughs> well, in my mind, I wish, but I was like a few years late. <laughs> so... I guess I will take with the next one and they, uh, the next question was like, as, as Natalie mentioned, the NUR77 or NR4A1, uh, we can also have uh, several uh, um, uh, proteins related just as uh, NR4A3 or NR4A2. So the main question at this point was if those uh, genes that are related would have like the same function as NUR77. So without going too much in experimental details, the authors found that the NR4A3, but not NR4A2, can slightly make up for the loss of NR4A1. So they later noticed that uh, NR4A3 knockout mice also had survival and proliferative advantage relative to wild-type B cells in response to BCR ligation. Uh, though this was this advantage was not as pronounced as we seen in the NUR77 knockout mice. So basically, NUR4A3 does the same as NUR77, but with less, uh, I don't know, with less power, let's say. Yeah, less yes. intensity? And just uh, as hmm. they have shown previously, that this advantage was also nullified once the signal 2 was provided. So once again, now they're showing that NUR77 or their protein uh, families. If you don't receive a signal two, you will have a, a function. But now, if you receive a signal two, T cell or uh, TLR stimulation, you will uh, 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 not have like the, the function of this gene. To so to summarize this, NR4A1 and three have partial reduced roles in restraining survival and proliferation of B cells after BCR ligation or signal one. Cool. So I think they've established the phenotype pretty strongly. So, uh, you know, what are you gonna do next? You're gonna look at the, the mechanism of, you know, what's going on with NR4A1 in BCR induced gene expression. So it's RNA seek time. Uh, Yay, RNA seq time, my favorite time. <laughs> I go to sleep and I look at the uh, look at RNA seq data. <laughs> I just think about volcano plots all day. Oh. Yeah, that's all I think about <laughs> in my in my idle time. <laughs> uh, so so they did 
RNA-seq with the knockout B-cells, and uh, they actually found some really cool genes. I think, uh, you know, they didn't even zoom in on, on all the cool genes that they found, but there's like a CCL4, CCL3, which are hemokines that are going to ask T-cells to come help. So it's just like, psst guess what? I'm activated. Come here, please, please help me. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, they, they go on to talk about that a little bit more. I think they should have, I don't know, looked at some of these other guys. Cause there's like uh VEGF, which is uh, related to hypoxia and the germinal center is a hypoxic environment. There's ICAM one, there's a SMAD in there. Um, and then they did find some, uh, like we've been saying, they've been looking at a couple of different members of this family. So um, they found that for the NR4A1 knockout, but not the NR4A3 knockout, there was an increase in uh, the transcription factor, uh, BAT-F. So even though it seems like they have pretty redundant functions, at least there are a few differences between the mm-hmm. two. So uh, overall, if you knock out either one of these genes, you see a change in gene expression after you stimulate the BCR. Who knew? So bad F here, they're, they're looking at it because it probably has a, a big function, right? In in the things that go on after B cell receptor signaling. Yeah. Oh. Hmm. So next part, and Natalie, you talked about MYC in the beginning of the paper, and that's what they're pursuing right now. <clears throat> so far, we have seen that NR4A knockout B cells survive more, they proliferate more, they're also bigger. And all of this phenotype sounds like what MYC does. When MYC is activated, it's a transcription factor in B cells that affects a variety of things. So it increases proliferation, it increases cell size, increases metabolism and it has a variety of target genes so it makes sense to look at my career <clears throat> this is also a proto-oncogene as you mentioned the authors see that mic protein was upregulated in nr4a1 knockout b cells compared to wild type b cells however when a signal 2 was added there was no difference in mic expression so that sounds like a very clear link the authors try to connect this to the upregulation of BAT-F that was observed in NR4A1 knockout B cells. So now the BAT-F story is trying to, going to make some sense. <laughs> they looked at potential binding sites for NR4A family members in the BAT-F chromatin region, and they found a downstream location near BAT-F gene where NR4A family members can bind. So it's possible that the NR4A binds to this region and represses BATF. That's why when in the NR4A knockout B cells, there was more BATF. So th- and there are studies published that show that BATF can increase MYC expression. So that's the next clue for the authors. We got this link forming and it's getting clearer. They generate these NR4A conditional knockouts in B cells with a heterozygous BATF to lower its expression. It was observed that when BATF expression was cut in half due to the mice being heterozygous, there is reduced MYC expression in these B cells. We finally have a model here. So NR4A1 is expressed after BCR stimulation. This protein probably goes to the BATF chromatin and represses its expression. When there is less BATF, there will be, uh, uh, wait, there is less BATF now, so to upregulate MYC expression, which is up, uh, which is associated with B cell proliferation survival. So this is a very long loop forming here. So in summary, I know it's a lot of things. I just added BATF, I just added MYC, but in summary, NR4A1 or NER77 represses MYC in part via sub- repression of BATF. Ooh, how many times did I say BATF in this <laughs> <just> now? <laughs> and, you know, I was really happy to see this figure uh, because sometimes in the papers, you you know, you see a phenotype and the authors never reach to 
to figure out what's going on. And I think they beautifully did this uh, signaling through BCR, NUR, BAT, MIC, and all of, all of their phenotype, which I really is fantastic. I'm really happy that they show all of this because I'm not really convinced and, and it makes more clear the history right now. Yeah, I, I, I always appreciate a, a figure about mechanisms just makes me remember everything better. I don't know. I'm, I I think it's awesome. Yes, beautiful. But it's clear that like all of the overinduced genes that they found in the knockout B cells also are, are you know, important for B cell stuff. So I think it's more likely That's that it's, it's like, yeah, it's <laughs> modestly uh, influencing a large set of genes. And so yeah. we have this problem with microRNAs. It's always like, oh, if they want you to find one target for the mechanism. It's like, no, these guys can regulate literally hundreds of genes. I don't know what you want me to do. <laughs> must be a t must be tough studying microRNA. Oh, yeah, but you know, we're living the dream over here, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay, so now we're going on to figure eight, and this is asking how T cell help is uh, important for uh, the NR4A1's job in vivo. So we've kind of shown you know, about the pathway and how that controls B cell proliferation and survival. But they want to see what happens when there's just varying amounts of T cell help because within the germinal center reaction, there is competition for T, uh, T cell help. So the question is, if you're missing uh, NR4A1, are these B cells like more fit just as they were in vitro? So I think this is a really cool model. It's kind of confusing, but they have like a donor mouse and they can transfer in, you know, the B cells, which are either wild type or knockout. And they can also transfer in uh, splenocytes that are specific to a particular antigen, which is OVA. So they can put in, and because it's splenocytes, it's got a little bit of everything, you know? So yeah. uh, they can put in a little bit and they consider that limited T cell help. And I don't remember what like the precise number of what was considered limited T cell help versus uh, excess T cell help. But basically they'll transfer in certain amounts of splenocytes along with the B cells. And then they'll measure uh, what happens uh, when you have excess T cell help. Um, so what happened here uh, basically is that the knockout B cells had a competitive advantage when there was limited T cell help. But uh, once you had more than enough T cell help, then uh, the advantage wasn't there anymore, which kind of kind of goes along with the phenotype that we've been seeing this whole time, is that if the second signal is there, then it doesn't really matter. But if there's any type of competition for the second signal, these guys are going to win out every time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's the biggest conclusion from this uh, pretty pretty nifty experiment, actually very elegant. And they also use a, a CD40 ligand knockout animal um, later as well, which would not be capable of giving T cell help. Uh, during these transfers and see kind of the same thing. So overall, what they gained from this is that in vivo, uh, you still get a proliferative advantage if you're missing uh, NR4A1 with, uh, when there is limited T cell help. And it's, it's, it, it's good, right? For competition is good in germinal center. Yeah, because- When there is competition, you get high affinity B cells that will eventually help you fight some infection. So if this NR4A is making it more competitive, that's what it's doing, right? It's increasing the stringency. Mm -hmm. It's making it more competitive. It's making sure that B cells don't get out as memory B cells or plasma cells unless they receive some T cell help. So this NR4A, it's good for survival of the organism, not for the B cells. B cells hate it, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's making them do work. They're yeah. having an existential crisis of B cell fate. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. It's good because it's making sure only only the T cell selected B cells or whatever second signal they're getting, only they, these B cells will go through the, the final stage. By the way, have you guys have you guys noticed plasma cells are freaks? <laughs> in, <laughs> as, in, as, as in, they don't look like B cells at all. Yeah, they're they, like they all lose, long and yeah. big. Yeah, they even lose CD19, which is mm -hmm. typically what people 
use as a as a prototypical marker for B cells. They lose B220. Yeah, they also lose B220. What the heck? I guess they they have some intermediate expression of B220, but I'm not sure about that. But yeah, they they are. I would classify them as a completely different cell type. And usually people don't call them B cell type, right? We we usually refer to them as uh, plasma cells. Not like I just just call them CD138 positive B220 low. <laughs> low. <laughs> that's 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 a good way to look at them from a flow cytometry perspective. Blimp positive. Anyway, <laughs> I feel I feel like this paper had a very clear conclusion about things. So let's let's just discuss about this. They did not discuss about yeah. CCL3. They did not discuss about CCL4. And I'm sure there's some good link about it, and they will mention that in their future publications sure and and it also uh you know as you said this is a, this paper is really beautiful because it helped us to understand the mechanism that that is behind the dependence on signal 2 for b cell so it always when i was like looking at this topic you know like i was thinking okay what happened if the b cell does not encounter the t cell because i imagine like you know, to find it, this specific clone, you know, I mean, I, I, I do all these crazy things in my mind, but yeah, I think it's really a mechanistic, beautiful paper. And also, you know, I don't know if you guys, I mean, for at least I think, uh, I don't know if we could say that uh, if NUR77 could actually be uh, having a role in other uh, B cell uh, uh, during the development, I don't know in the, within the Germinal Center or maybe as a plasma cell. I actually, I don't know. I don't know if Natalie would would like to say something about that about this. But do you think this gene will be related with at least I don't know at least in the Germinal Center or in the in as plasma cells or just at the beginning? I I looked at the RNA seq skyline for this guy. Oh. And it seems like you can get a, it's like Imgen mm-hmm. or something, and you can see the expression profile of it. And it seems like it's just upregulated, uh, not in plasma cells and not in the early guys either. So something's probably driving it down at some point. And I think that's a huge question that this paper mm-hmm. uh, will probably investigate next is mm-hmm. what down regulates, uh, you know, this gene. Yeah. Yeah. And who who regulate up regulates it? Is it? Ex- What's going exactly. on? Exactly. <laughs> now let's think like in autoimmunity or or, or or cancer as well. Just as you were mentioned as leukemia, I'm thinking now that maybe this mechanism is not actually working in leukemia. I don't know if that could be even a possible or to think about you know any possible mechanism for therapeutic uh, against uh, Nur77. Although I think you you will need to have like really really bad luck to to have like the mutation of the two copies the nr for one a one uh one and a three and but yeah three. i think it's definitely a, a beautiful paper and mechanistically and they you know i learned a lot about this paper i guess nr4a should be really important then <laughs> if multiple family members are redundant yeah. It's literally yeah. like if you lost one, then you'd be wrecked. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why they have to have two. I, I, I was able to make this connection. So uh, it, this was a journal club paper that we presented, the first journal club paper in antibodies, that in T-cells, when only signal one is received, TC, the TCR signal, it turns out that these T-cells do get activated. Some of them can go through energy, but they still get activated. The only difference is when they don't receive the CD28 signaling or the second signal, there are no memory cells in T cells. They mm. there are only effector T cells. And it turns out that there is a mitochondrial remodeling required that makes the makes the whole whole uh, environment there for memory T cells to exist. Because memory T cells they're high on oxidative phosphorylation and they survive more. So that uh, that paper really helped me understand why the signal two is important, and I would say the same thing about this paper in context of B cells. Now I have some idea why or what's happening behind the scenes when signal two is not there. So let's summarize the whole paper. If somebody slept in the first fifteen hours of this discussion, 
this is what happens. B cells receive signal 1 through their BCRs. As a result, NR4A1 and 3 members are upregulated. These members go and possibly bind somewhere uh, to near the BATF locus in the genome and they repress BATF expression. BATF, since it's repressed, cannot upregulate MYC anymore. B cells have limited proliferation and survival as a result. When signal 2 is received, it overrides the effect of NR4A1 and 3 through an unknown mechanism which I'm sure we will be hearing about soon in a few months or years depending on how much funding NIH is giving for this stuff. Depends on how good the grad student is. Also that. <laughs> <laughs> that. That was a nice discussion. Do you guys want to add anything before we wrap this up? No, I think you nailed it. Very good. Cool. So finally a B-cell paper and I'm guessing we will be doing more 101 episodes in future because we haven't the four first episodes of antibodies for 101 after that we have never done a 101 and it it hurts me a little bit because that was initially the plan of starting this podcast so let's do a 101 episode probably gene rearrangement but let's think about it are you guys sure. okay with that yeah let's do gene rearrangement the villain the bad guy of immunology that makes people scared and never yeah. come back <laughs> We will we'll try to make it interesting and palatable. Yes, and if people in the audience, if anyone have any suggestions about doing a one-on-one, you know, I think we will be happy to do some of them. Yeah, we've yeah, got that'll be good. so much knowledge to share. <laughs> so much knowledge to and share. Really, I am bleeding knowledge here. Good, <laughs> we have a lot of good jokes too. We have I, I, don't know. I don't know if they're you know, what, what I don't know about good that, jokes, man. but they are jokes. <laughs> we got jokes. That's it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys, for joining me today at 8 p.m. We usually do it at the daytime, but thanks, guys. Um, anybody watch, uh, listening to us, uh, you can check out our Facebook page. We are also on Instagram, and sometimes I open my Twitter app, but only sometimes if you're there. Um, we will see you guys in two weeks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.